If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. I'm Tony Dean, and today we'll be calling history to speak with Frederick Douglass, the ambassador of Haiti. He'll be answering our call in late 1889, in his early 70s. Douglas was born into slavery, but at the age of six, he learned what it meant by watching his aunt being brutally beaten by her master. A decade later, after being sold to the man he called the Slave Breaker, he was whipped so frequently that the previous wounds didn't have time to heal between beatings. Then one day, he decided to fight back. The whippings immediately ended, and an inspired Douglas escaped to chase freedom. In 1945, as a slave on the run, he published his memoir, The Life of Frederick Douglass, an American Slave. It was a bestseller. He used that platform to mesmerize audiences as the highest paid orator of his time. While others may have chosen to coast and enjoy their newfound fame and fortune, Douglas instead chose to use his platform to press for revolution that would abolish slavery forever. Ladies and gentlemen, fellow history lovers and vice presidential nominees everywhere, I give you Frederick Douglass. Hello, Mr. Douglass, is that you? Yes, it is. Sir, I am so thankful for your time today. My name is Tony Dean, and I'm talking to you from the future in the 21st century. The device that you're holding is called a smartphone, and it allows us to speak as if I were sitting in the front row of one of your lectures. It also allows me to share a recording of our conversation with people around the world. And I was hoping that I could ask you some questions today about your extraordinary life, but before I do, I understand this is a strange introduction. Can I answer any questions that you may have first? No, other than it doesn't surprise me that you're using a smartphone throughout my life, my career. I tried to take advantage of the new technology of my day in the hopes of achieving equal rights and democracy for all. And it sounds like you're doing the same thing. Most definitely, yeah. I mean, technology now is everything in our time. When you say you took advantage of technology in your time, what would be an example of that? Well, I had myself photographed whenever I could. I think I was probably one of the most, if not the most, photographed American in the 19th century. I saw photography as an accurate form of representation, unlike all of the racist caricatures that racist whites created of blacks. So photography was both a beautiful art form and a protest art form, and 90% of photographs were portraits. So I got to know a number of photographers. I saw my relationship with the photographer and the camera as a kind of pas de trois, a dance for three. And I was proud of the way my image was able to circulate. I've always been a public figure. I felt more comfortable speaking to the public ear than writing for the 
public eye, even though I wrote a lot, I just felt more comfortable as a speaker, and I'm best known for being an orator. I attract a larger speaking fee than virtually any of my peers, and I was proud of that, particularly given the fact that I was born enslaved. But it was the speaking, writing, and visual art were three major forms of protest. And so essentially that's, that's why I'm intrigued by this new medium. And in fact, in one of my speeches, I concluded by saying that poets, prophets, and reformers are all picture makers. And this ability is the secret of their power. They see what ought to be in the reflection of what is and endeavor to remove the contradiction. And I devoted my life trying to transform what is into what ought to be, particularly in terms of all rights, in terms of race, in terms of democracy. Interesting. So obviously... The fact that you were the most photographed person in the 19th century was something that you were doing very intentionally. When I look at your pictures, though, I don't think, and I've probably seen 50, 60 maybe of them, I don't think I've ever seen one with a smile. I mean, obviously, you went through some very challenging things in your life. I have to assume that was intentional. Is that right? That is correct. That's very astute. That was a protest against so many of the racist caricatures created by whites who depict the happy slave, so to speak, who depict blacks with a smile on their face. After the Civil War, they were truly horrific caricatures, had a huge smile with red lips and big, big cheeks and or big lips and nose. It was just a horrible caricature. And So it was important to offset, to combat those racist caricatures. So you did that intentionally so that people couldn't label you as the happy slave. They couldn't make you into a cartoon, it sounds like. That's correct. Now, I should also say that in the 1840s through the 1860s, the exposure time for the camera was far longer than it was by the 1880s. And to hold a smile becomes strained if you have to hold it for a minute. Most sophisticated sitters would not smile because of the sense of force expression in the long exposure time. I see. So if you were to sit and smile for a minute nonstop afterwards, it wouldn't look like you at all. It would look like you'd been smiling for two minutes or something. Correct. It would look like a forced smile. But the main reason was to offset these horrible racist caricatures. Yeah. So that kind of surprises me because when I picture these horrible drawings that you're talking about, white people portraying that slaves are happy people, in your time, slavery is still very controversial. Are there people that would look at this media and think that the slaves don't have it that bad? I mean, are they that easily fooled? Yes, they are very easily fooled. They tell themselves lies. 
whites tell themselves lies. So by saying that enslaved people don't have it that bad is a way to avoid guilt. It's a way to exorcise one's guilt about trying to dehumanize another human being. Slavery has been a fact of life, as I've written, for from classical antiquity forward. But in the United States, slavery was, in a sense, unique in that if you were a slave, you were a slave for life, whereas in other slave societies, there was some opportunity for slaves. It was small, but some opportunity for slaves to become free. And race, certainly in ancient Greece and ancient Rome, was not a central aspect of slavery, whereas in North America and the United States, race was foundational to slavery. So people who looked white, if they had a mother or grandmother or father who was a slave, they were a slave. And the masters of plantations, it was, they were in a sense encouraged to rape female slaves and produce more slave children. Wow was not, unfortunately, uncommon. That's awful. You just cleared something up for me that I've been trying to figure out, I think. So when you're saying that these caricatures were designed to make the whites feel better, I can totally see that. And over the last year, I've had many of these conversations like we're having right now, and many of them have been with people that own slaves or did own slaves. And the one thing that I find that is very common from one slave owner to the next is that they all tell me the story about how great they treated their slaves. And it's weird because the story's the same every single time. And it kind of made me think maybe that is something people tell themselves and just overlook the fact that they're stealing somebody's freedom, but it's something that they tell themselves to make themselves feel better about something that they know is wrong. That's exactly right. And that was, and it unfortunately circulated widely. The slave owners believed that their institution was a enlightened and the best institution in the world. They saw it as a form of a medieval serfdom, that that was superior. They believed that there was a rigid hierarchy, and so, which essentially denies the humanity of others. If they actually confronted the humanity of the people they were enslaved, it would create immense guilt, and immense, it would uproot their understanding of themselves and their world. So for centuries, whites told lies about themselves and their world and people who look different from them. Essentially, I've devoted a good part of my life to this, uh, highlighting the degree to which the notion of equality, the notion of true democracy, the notion of all rights, all people having equal rights, is very threatening to arguably most people. Democracy is a very fragile institution, especially one in which equality actually exists. 
for all people. In most societies, there is an effort by the government, by the state, to create hierarchies. Human beings feel more comfortable with hierarchies. They feel threatened by equality. And it's one of the things I tried to expose and tried to make people feel comfortable with equality and embrace it. There is one thing that I read from you about white people saying that the fact that the slaves in the field were singing showed that they were happy. And this would just be another one of those situations, I think, where people are trying to find some way to say, this is okay, even though they know that it's not. Correct. In fact, we referred to them as sorrow songs. We sang because of our sorrows, our deep sorrows. Interesting. When I was enslaved, it referred to them as sorrow songs. Masters created their own fictive world for reasons of power and money. It makes a lot of sense. For all of these stories that I have heard about how well people treated the people that they supposedly owned, you saw the worst of that, from my understanding. When you were very young, I read that the very first person that you saw beaten badly was your, I think it was your aunt when you were six years yeah. old. Is that right? Yeah. Can you tell me about yeah. that? My aunt, I saw my master, Aaron Anthony. I saw my master, Aaron Anthony, viciously whip on Hester because she had a boyfriend, a fellow enslaved, a fellow enslaved person on the plantation. And he had frequently raped her. I didn't understand it at the time because I was so small. But he essentially, Aaron Anthony wanted to, treated her as a concubine. And it was my awakening, my introduction to slavery. And that frankly happened on most plantations in my second autobiography, my bondage and my freedom. When I was hired out to the sadistic slave breaker Edward Covey, who was a true sadist. Covey owned, at that time he was a poor farmer, he owned uh, only one slave who was a teenage woman. And he forced her to sleep in the same very small shack with one of the male slaves he had rented out for the year, which was very common. If you owned slaves, you could rent them out because poor farmers, would they didn't have enough money to buy them, so they would lease them for a year. And so they had to sleep together in this prison, and the intention for Kobe was that she would get pregnant, which she did. And by the end of the year, he now owned two slaves. And he continued to pursue that practice. And by the eve of the Civil War, Edward Covey owned over 10 slaves and was wealthy. I don't want to glaze over a couple things here. And I want to ask you some specific things about Covey. And he was the person that I understand was referred to as the slave breaker. Is that a phrase Correct. you're familiar with? I, that's the phrase I coined. That came from you? Yes. Oh. That came from me. Okay, I want to come back to him in just a second. 
because I, I want to ask you something first about when you were with Aaron Anthony. You said that he beat your aunt, Hester, because she had a boyfriend. That Correct. totally confuses me. If she's got a boyfriend, well, maybe she was older. Isn't she likely to get pregnant? And then wouldn't that make more slaves? Why is that a bad thing? It seems like a master would want that. No, because he wanted her for himself. Oh. It, was, it was a matter of power. He Always comes down to power. Himself. Yes. Okay. So back to Edward Covey, the slave breaker. This guy sounds like he was awful. And it, it, as he was trying to breed new slaves, before I ask you about him, I'm curious if a white man rapes a black woman and she now has a child, that child is half black and half white, is that child automatically a slave? Because that child is also half white. How would a no, white person look at that? Slaves follow the mother, and it doesn't matter how dark or light you look, slaves follow the mother. If you are a slave owner and your slave bears a child, that child is automatically owned by you as well. Okay. That is hard to imagine. So, so then, if I'm hearing this right, if a man... It was the, it was the chattel principle. We were treated as dogs, as beasts of burden. We were sold in the same arena in which dogs and horses and cattle were sold. We were seen as chattel, as property, like a horse or a cow or a goat or a dog. So, so if you own a dog, if you own a dog and your dog has babies, they remain your babies. Wow. I see it. Yeah, until you say that, I can't see it. It's hard to see a person as a dog, but that's it. If your dog had babies, it's not like somebody's trying to figure out who owns them. That's it. You own them. That's right. Incredible. Okay. So if a man rapes a black woman and he is her master, it just seems strange that man has to know that person that is now a slave that he owns is also his child. Or is that something that Masters of slaves just overlook. It would depend on that master. Some masters felt guilt, but could not and did not publicize that guilt. Masters attacked and beat abolitionists who accused them of the chattel principle of raping a slave and benefiting from the child that came from it. The best example is Charles Sumner, the friend of mine, in my view, the greatest senator in my time, abolitionist senator from Massachusetts. He gave a speech in 1856 where he targeted a very prominent fellow senator from South Carolina, and he highlighted, he subtly conveyed the way in which this senator had raped slaves and generated more property because of that. And because of his honesty about exposing what slavery was, Sumner was beaten almost to death on the Senate floor wow. and was lucky to have survived. He went on, he did survive, he went on to 
become the chief advocate for true democracy, for equal rights. So you should read his brilliant 1866 address, All Rights for All, where he highlights the difficulty of democracy, the long tradition of its difficulty, and the importance of it for a democracy. You've used that word democracy over and over, and I want to come back to that because I'm guessing that you have some strong feelings about what that looks like, what it should look like. But I don't want to finish with Edward Covey yet. I want to talk about him a little bit more. When you went to his home, I think you were 15 years old that time. If I got my dates right, that was 1833. That's correct. That I know. I do not know when I was born. Oh, okay. I, I estimate, and I think it was 1817, but I don't know. What and is that like true. not to know when you're born? That's true. It's what an enslaved person grows up with. Is that common? It was widespread. Almost all enslaved people had no knowledge of their exact birth. So if an enslaved person had a child, did they celebrate birthdays and just assign a day or not celebrate them at all? So that was the one instance in which they could, but it was... What was more common was the children would be separated from the mother, from the family. And the best example of that is at the end of the Civil War, what I called and President Lincoln called the War of the Rebellion, because it was a rebellion. Southerners took up arms against the United States government. But a major fact, if you were walking in the former rebel states, African-Americans would be on the road searching for family members trying to reunite. And there were in every, virtually every newspaper advertisements seeking knowledge of a family member because during slavery they had been sold away. Did slavers intentionally do that for some reason? Or was it just because Again, you got it, 10 it, horses it, or it, 10 dogs? You just it, get rid of the ones you yeah. don't need? Think of the chattel principle. If you have a horse or you have a cow in which you can make more money selling that animal than you can keeping that animal, you will do it without any compunction. Did Uh, you ever stand on the block at one of those slave markets? No, but I saw more than I would have liked. I was thinking that you would say no, that you had not, because... My understanding is you just, they moved you from place to place and you knew where you were going each time, but you were never actually sold in that way. Correct. I was comparatively lucky. I was comparatively privileged in the sense that I, the worst years were under the sadist Edward Covey, whereas most slaves had to spend their whole lives in fields with someone like Covey. Tell me about him. What was his deal? Why is he such a sadist? Does he just beat people because to beat he, them? Because he, he was a poor man who wanted to get rich, which he did. Oh. By exploiting and dehumanizing other people. So when you first go out to Covey's place and you start working, is there instant conflict? 
Is there a reason he starts beating you? Does he just try to assert his dominance in the hopes that there won't be more problems later? I mean, why is it that he beat you so badly? Can you explain that? Because I resisted. And I also had not had experience cultivating wheat and using oxen and horses. And so I was a beginner on a farm. I had never done farm work before. And any beginner on a farm makes mistakes. And when I made a mistake, I was whipped. I was whipped. I was brutally whipped on average once a week. And I still have scars on my back from Covey. Did Covey play a role in what you did later in your life? Because when you were with the, I think you were with the Alds before him. Is that right? Yes, Thomas Ald. I was, Thomas Ald was, Hugh and Thomas were both my master. Hugh lived in Baltimore. Thomas Ald had a home on the eastern shore of Maryland. And he was the one who rented me out to Edward Covey. Did he not, was he unhappy with you? Is that why he did that? He had to know what was wrong. No, he did it for money. He did it for money. He rented me out. In other words, he leased me to Covey for money. Much as if I, much as, I mean, businesses would do that. That was it. He just looked at you and said, you're X amount of dollars, and uh, yeah. Covey was willing to pay that. Yeah. A chattel principle. A chattel principle. Did you fight Covey? I did, and it was the turning point in my career as a slave. I was sick in, in the field one day and collapsed, and Covey started whipping me horribly. And I decided to return to my owner, Thomas Ald. It was a several-mile walk. I was bleeding. I was sick, horribly sick. When, Thomas, when my master saw me, he was shocked at what Covey had done. I asked if I could stay with him, and Covey refused because he had already leased me out, so I had to return to Covey. And I recovered to a degree, and it was at that moment, at that point, where I decided to fight even if I died. And... We had essentially a two-hour fight. Fortunately, I was tall, over six feet, strong. Kobe was the average height of men, maybe 5'3". And I knew that I could not knock him out or kill him because I would be killed. But I primarily tried to just defend myself and parry his bad punches. And after two hours, he essentially gave up. He was beaten by a boy of 16. And for the rest of my life, I have seen that as the turning point from the hell of slavery to becoming a free man in spirit, if not in form. So and that from moment, that, And from that point, I devoted myself to becoming free and to exposing the sadism the inhumanity, the murderous nature of slavery. That obviously was a significant moment in your life. If that moment had the not happened... The major turning point. The major turning point. Okay. If that moment had not happened, or you had never gone to Covey at all, 
would your life have gone a totally different direction then? That's a great question. Yes. I've written, I've given speeches and published them on the degree to which that each person, each human is like an arrow being shot from a bow. And we don't know how far, how high, or how low it will go, when it will break. We have some control. But ultimately, it's God who determines who leads us. And even as an enslaved person, a great inspiration was my King James Bible. You're a very religious person, aren't you? Yes. How is that? It's got to be difficult to be so religious and such a strong believer when you see so much bad. I mean, people selling people as property. How do you overcome that? By being an activist, by protesting, which is exactly what Jesus did. That makes sense. He recognized the equal humanity of all people. And if you read the Bible carefully, you realize the degree to which he saw all people as equal, men and women, regardless of where you came from, who you were. And that was an extraordinary inspiration. I tribute whatever writing and oratorical skills I have in large part to the Bible. I feel like you may be skipping a step there. What's that? Why? Well, the person who introduced you to reading and writing first was Sophia. Yes, Sophia. <laughs> we can't leave Sophia out. I, don't, I know her husband didn't love it, but Sophia, the, I find that story so interesting. This is what I heard. You tell me what is right and what's wrong. I heard that Sophia, who was, I think, Thomas, or one of the, Hugh Alt's... Uh, Hugh Alt's wife. Right. In all, well, you tell of, all of my writings, I acknowledge her humanity. She had never owned a slave before. So when I came to live with Sophia and Hugh, she had a son my age. She started teaching her son how to read, teaching him his ABCs. I was immensely curious. I wanted to learn too, and so I asked her. And so she started teaching me how to read through the Bible. Oh, okay. And you, who had far more familiarity with slavery, witnessed that, got mad at his wife, and said in front of me that the easiest way to destroy a slave is to teach him how to read, because that empowers him. And we don't want to do that. When I heard that, I realized that reading and speaking and writing was the most powerful weapon that I could acquire. Ah. Isn't that incredible how the human brain works? Because it would have been so easy for Hugh to look at that situation and say, we have to teach these people because that's how they'll rise up. But instead, he goes the other direction and says, Phew. We can't show these guys things like letters and books and words but, because but, then they'll want more. But no, no master wants a slave, an enslaved person to rise up. 
That's why he prohibited it. Slavery is, in one sense, slavery is defined by an immensely low ceiling. Think of it as lying in a coffin, above which you can never rise. It's fixed. Slavery is based on this notion of fixity, whereas democracy is based on this notion of evolution, the ability to continually evolve, never fix. Slavery is based on fixity, the individual and the social world being profoundly fixed. So there's a certain barrier above which you can never rise. Democracy is about being able to explode, burst through that barrier, because it's, it's always in flux and continually evolve and continually to rise. And Covey was part of the slave system. There was a rigorous, rigid hierarchy and barrier above which some people should not rise up and evolve. And Covey, and in fact, virtually every slave owner believed that there was a fixed hierarchy in society. And they accepted, not just accepted, but embraced slavery, believed that slave society was the most virtuous, best society in the world. Someone with a rich mind like yours. I've never heard democracy described quite the way that you just did. But the way that you just described it to me is exactly the opposite of slavery. And yet here you Correct. have Correct. yeah, here you have America. America is standing for democracy, pave your own way, and at the exact same time they're saying except for you several million, we don't want you to pave your own way. We want to be as hypocritical as a human being could be. Correct. Correct. And the only exception was if you were a white man. Democracy did exist for white men. Which, of course, white men wrote the rules. Correct. So what would the world have looked like if the, all of the founding fathers had been women? <laughs> <laughs> a little different? Abigail Adams posed that to John because the Adams family... Both John Adams and John Quincy Adams, I've read a lot of their writings. And Abigail prodded John Adams around the time that the Declaration was written. And John just dismissed her out of hand, mocked her, and laughed at her. And it was unfortunate. In fact, the two Adamses were comparatively enlightened. In fact, John Adams... And John Quincy Adams, both of whom their works I've read and have been inspired by, they are the only two presidents until the Civil War who never owned slaves. Isn't that Every incredible? Other president was a slave owner. Yeah, Abigail Adams, I know exactly what you're talking about, by the way, because she's the last person that I spoke with. And you're talking about the letter that she wrote to John. It was called something like, yes. don't forget the ladies. <laughs> yes. She was, I love to debate. I would not have wanted to debate Abigail. She was brilliant. She, brilliant. Humble, like this beautiful combination of insanely intelligent and humble. That's what I got. Yeah, very yeah. interesting. And in fact, one of my proudest accomplishments or things that I'm proudest of is my efforts, my work for women's rights. I was one of the few men at the Seneca Falls Convention in 
1848, and I stood up and endorsed the resolution for full suffrage for men and women, which in, at that time some women had opposed. Why would women oppose uh, that? I don't understand that at all. Partly because they felt it would lead to beatings, it would lead to violence, because men would be so outraged at the very idea. So it wasn't because they didn't want it, it was because they felt that if their husbands or their fathers knew that they had advocated full suffrage for men and women, they would be beaten. They were trying to keep the peace. Correct. That makes sense. I understand that you were a huge proponent for women's rights. One of your most famous speeches is the one that I think that you gave in front of a group of women about the 4th of July. Was, is that right? Was that with, in front of a group of women? Yes. Yeah. What to the slave is the 4th of July. It was mostly women in Rochester. Rochester was a great city for me, and it was at the beautiful Corinthian Hall, and it was July 5th not fourth for right. a variety of reasons I could describe, but it was women were central, absolutely central to the success of the abolition movement and some of my closest friends were women. Would Susan B. Anthony be one of them? Yeah, so she was a friend we argued over the fifteenth Amendment because if you don't know, Congress passed the 15th Amendment and it only guaranteed suffrage for all men, although indigenous peoples were excluded, but not women. And Elizabeth Cady Stan and Susan B. Anthony, both friends of mine, vigorously wanted women to have the vote before African Americans without appreciating the degree to which during Reconstruction, after emancipation, a fact of life in the former slave states in the South, a fact of life was lynching. There was at least a lynching or more a day, virtually every day, for decades and decades. Wow. And women were abused, but they weren't lynched in the same way that African-American men were. Is that why it was so important to push black rights first? Because they were treated so poorly? Because they were, because they were murdered daily. If a white man murdered an African-American in the post-Civil War era, particularly the post-Reconstruction era, they did it with impunity. They were never charged, almost never charged. Every day? So would you just be wandering down a street? Almost, yeah. You would see somebody hanging yeah. from a tree? Yes. In fact, not just hanging. Lynchings would attract large crowds. It would be like a circus. They would advertise a lynching. So hundreds of people would come. They would exchange postcards with photographs of often burned bodies. It was horrific. It was the epitome of dehumanization. That's and unbelievable. In fact, one of, my, one of the speeches that I was most proud of was an anti-lynching speech where I referred to the significance of black lives mattering. Did this happen less later in your life? 
No, it happened with more frequency. During slavery, because slaves were chattel, because they were property, oh. whites didn't kill them. They didn't you wouldn't them. hang your goat. Yes, you wouldn't burn and murder your horse or your cow or your goat. They were property. They were commodities, valuable commodities. In fact, the price of the average field hand did nothing but go up almost from the 1830s, 1820s, or 30s through until 1860. Whereas the price of cotton, the price of wheat, other commodities fluctuated. If, and one of the reasons why poor whites wanted to become slave owners is that was the American dream. Covey is the great example. Covey started out as poor white trash. He had the one slave when I was rented out to him. By the Civil War, he owned over 10 slaves. He was extremely wealthy. He became an elite plantation owner. And never Uh, paid the price for the way that he treated people. No, never paid the price. And so, but after slavery is abolished, that's when lynching explodes. Because becomes, trying to rein people they're no in. Longer, they're no longer property. Wow. They're no longer an asset. That's incredible. So I'm assuming this is where the Ku Klux Klan comes in. Correct. They started during Reconstruction. And it highlights the power of race. They were willing to do anything possible to prevent us from becoming citizens and becoming equal in a democracy. What can you tell me about the Ku Klux Klan? It manifested itself in multiple forms, but it was a murderous attempt to affirm white supremacy, to prevent African Americans in particular, but also other outsiders, from having any kind of equal rights. And it became a hugely popular organization in northern states as well as in southern states. But in southern states, most men, most white men were leaders of a Klan organization or its equivalent. It's during the Reconstruction era because federal troops actually were sent into the south to control the Klan, they started changing their names to other organizations to avoid exposure. The Klan emerges in Reconstruction to overturn the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery and has existed ever since. And it's why, as an older man now, my most famous speech is my anti-lynching speech. I think it's at least as good as what to the slave is the 4th of July. What year is it in your time right now? It's, I'm an old man. It's 1880s. Okay. How much courage did it take for Douglas to attack America's most revered holiday in his speech, What to the Slave is the 4th of July? How much bravery must one exhibit to publish a book that would make it easy for slave catchers to find and return Douglas to slavery? Regardless, Douglas's mission was clear, to do whatever it took to shine a light on the evils of slavery so that one day those that came after him would only be able to read about it. In the next episode, you're going to hear about Douglas's interactions with revolutionary John Brown and how he persuaded Abraham Lincoln. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to follow us and tell a friend about the Calling History Podcast.